we're seeing more interest in the space that we're in than probably at any point in the past. And so I think organizations are realizing if we want to keep our people, we need to invest in them. If we want them to get better, we need to invest in them. And, you know, we, we talk to companies, clients where, they, of course, a safety training is an important part of what they do. Technology training is an important part of what they do. But they're also investing in some of these leadership and effectiveness skills along the way. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is the Vice President of International Direct Offices at Franklin Covey. Considered the most trusted leadership company in the world, a change expert and the author of Change, How to Turn Uncertainty into Opportunity. With an MBA from the University of Utah and a BS in Business and Information Systems, from Brigham Young University, and over 30 years of experience in the training industry, he has become an international authority in change and leadership. He is a co-creator of groundbreaking solutions that have revolutionized the industry, such as Change Element, Leaders at Change, Managing Millennials, and Change Practitioner. Our guest previously served as president and CEO of Red Tree Leadership, working with notable clients such as 3Mobile, Bloomberg, and Boehringer Ingelheim. And as the former president CEO at Spencer Johnson, he worked with Dr. Spencer Johnson, the author of an incredible book, Who Moved My Cheese? Now join us as we delve into the dynamic mind of an experienced CEO, global speaker, and a visionary leader who fearlessly embraces change and inspires others to do the same. Curtis Bateman, Curtis, welcome to the show. Wow, what an introduction. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> Fun to hear it all and it's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful. So you're there in uh, Utah right now. I'm, I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were running around the playground and uh, trying to stay focused <laughs> in school? You know, I grew up on the Great Plains of the United States in the state of Nebraska which most people probably have never heard of and have no idea where it's located. And, you know, at the time, I suppose my dream may have been to be a farmer. I don't know. I love the land. So that, that didn't seem too practical as I got older, but um, I grew up on the prairie. Great, great place to live and grow up. Lots of freedom. Yeah, beautiful. And were you considered a more of a natural leader or follower in your formative years? A natural leader. It's always it's always been kind of in my DNA, just either through obligation or or purpose. But yeah, natural leader. And was there you know like a specific role model or someone who had quite an influence on your you during the your, your formative years that you feel have really set you up for success later on in life? Um, yeah, th there there were a number. It's funny I've thought about this before, and it. At each phase of my life, there's been somebody I've connected with that I've said, I really appreciate and admire what they have to offer. So maybe I'll mention two just out of, out of interest. Um, my very first job out of university, I still wasn't sure quite what I wanted to do. I'd finished my undergraduate degree and I ended up working for a leader who was, oh goodness, 40 years older than me. And I just admired um, 
how he thought through problems, how he framed problems. I found that um, when, when, when everybody on the team was really emotionally high, he was really calm and he created this really nice balance. And when everybody was feeling discouraged, he was positive. And, and I admired the intentionality he, he had around his leadership to, to bring the team to more of a steady state rather than really big highs and lows. And um, another one which you mentioned uh, was Dr. Spencer Johnson. I worked with him for nearly 10 years. And um, one of the things I learned about him is that when, when you are extremely focused on something um, and give it every ounce of focus and attention and energy, really remarkable things can happen. Uh, it was interesting because I think that was both his superpower and his weakness. Mm. Um, but his superpower yielded all these remarkable books. And it, it really helped me realize that if you want to tackle a big project, this relentless focus. I remember spending, I don't know, maybe four or five hours on one call with him, negotiating the words of one paragraph in a book. And, and we would change it and read it out loud and change it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to lose my mind. But for him, every single word mattered. And so um, at every stage of my life, there's been somebody like that where I've, I've learned to observe the greatness that I want to emulate and also to recognize the things about them or their leadership that weren't for me. And so that's been a real gift my whole life to have people like that that have appeared and that I've been able to learn from. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very similar to, you know, real true high performers where they're extremely focused on something, you know, like they, they know their vision is super clear. They're able to say no to a lot of things. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Say no to a lot of things versus mm -hmm. most people say yes to too many things. And they, they have, once you have real clarity on that vision, you narrow things down. And as you say, sometimes that can also go the opposite way because you kind of forget right. about other things that might be important like <laughs> relationships and uh you know making sure you eat and, and all those things as well all those things right it's funny <laughs> um but they are you know you look at all the high performers and they they just narrow mm -hmm. in they zone in and they really really go for it from a relentless point of view yep. and which is interesting you know i talk about uh the importance of if you're chasing, if you're going after something, you know, towards excellence, or you really want to achieve something, a big project, you need to be relentless without being ruthless or reckless. And we see a number of leaders around the world that that a lot of people will follow. Um, some won't, um, who tend to fall into that uh, the ruthless mode of you know taking no prisoners and kind of forgetting about the you know affecting other people or careless of consequences where they take risks that maybe go beyond what they should be um when we look at leaders in the world you know can can successful people just be relentless without being ruthless or reckless in your mind absolutely that's i, I love the way you frame that because one of the basic hypothesis in the work i've been doing on change is that people matter and are an integral part which which instantly eliminates the ruthless and it focuses on the relentless. But ruthlessness tends to treat people as commodities, as resources. And, you know, to each their own. But for me, that style of leadership doesn't fit with the world we live in. Mm. And um, it's also a style of leadership that may work for a moment in time, but it seems to be ephemeral. It doesn't, it doesn't stick. And it also means that you might be successful in one scenario, but those skills aren't necessarily translatable to another scenario. Whereas if you're if you're relentless and and you recognize that your people play a part in the equation, um, then I think you find a way to learn and grow and bring them along with you. And the relentlessness is applied to the problem or the issue or the circumstance. Um, and it, it, it allows you to take people along with you on the journey. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, as I've spent quite a bit of time in it, there are a couple of people that stand out where maybe it breaks the mold of that you know would have and, and being a great utah jazz fan i'm sure you are uh would michael <laughs> jordan and the chicago bulls won six titles if michael jordan and and sorry this is I, i'm looking at michael jordan from what we see in the media and and what yep. we're exposed to i don't know him personally 
but he did seem to be quite ruthless and reckless at times. But mm -hmm. I, and with the cattle or the, the, the talent he had, would they have actually achieved six titles without him being all three? I'm not sure. It's an interesting one to think about. I, first of all, you brought up my favorite sport and my favorite team. So well done, Craig. That's just spectacular. <laughs> um, and I, I'm a, a big fan of Michael Jordan. I, I do think that poses an interesting question. And, you know, we often compare sports to lots of other facets of life. Um, I guess for me, that's for each person to make their own decision. Um, the question for me always comes back to what is it that I want as a leader? And as a leader, I'm always looking to find ways to help not only me be successful, but to help people grow and become more successful, because I think that creates a multiplying effect. And, and that's what I'm looking for is a multiplying effect. So often when you're ruthless, it's, it's more narrow, more constrained, and it's, it's about a moment in time or a very small circumstance. So no, I, I wouldn't want to take anything away from Michael Jordan. The, the, the man is amazing, but, um, um, I want to think about being a business leader. I think it's um, it's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And you know, there's probably a good example of this with Elon Musk right now. And you know, in in maybe the way he's approaching things. And yes, he might get the you know small percentage of people in the world that that actually love and because because you know, sometimes you begin to be fascinated by the vision and you kind of let go of mm. some of the the other things that may go along the way in regards to, you know, some ruthless or reckless acts that may be happening. And you're so focused on the vision that you'll take it. But for me, it's like, yeah, that's short term. The, the people will, yep, they might want to work the long hours. They may always want to be in the office and they're the only type of people that will end up being working for him. But long term, what is the collateral damage? You know, what is the mental health issues that people face because they, um, the leader is not managing the energy of the team. They're just, they, they're so excited about the vision that they go beyond what their mind and body can probably handle long-term. And so I, I'm, I'm curious just to kind of watch what happens in that space because I admire Elon Musk for what he can achieve, mm -hmm. but we also hear a number of different stories around the way he, he works with people that may not be considered... Um, this day and age leadership style. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's so interesting because you've, you've listed two people that are globally recognized, certainly influential in, in many respects, change their sport, change the world. And, and so they're remarkable. Um, wouldn't want to diminish the rest of us in the world, the other 7 billion people. But um, I think you're right. I've, I've worked with two people very closely that are that, ruthless or that myopic and narrow in their focus. And they they do unbelievable things at a price mm. and there's a cost. And so that's why this is an individual choice. And um, I suppose, you know, the work that I've done is focused on the rest of us that might fit into a, a you know, a different definition. Um, because that's that's the masses where I think there's room to help people, and um, you're right. Some of these are fascinating case studies, and the world wouldn't be what it is without some of those people. And I guess we all have to make our own decisions around whether or not that's good or bad. Yeah, and look, they are outliers, and I think you know the more we can focus on creating people that are driven, without driving other people out the door, so to speak, or driving over them. Um, I think the better off we're going to be. Now, your fascination of serving people and leading people, where did that come from? Or did it just kind of happen by mistake? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I, you know, some of it I think is just um, my personality, right? But But I've been really, really intentional at every stage from, you know, late teenager, uh, trying to observe human behavior and identify what I find as useful, meaningful. And I've, I've developed my own personal mission. 
And I've tried to align my mission, my values, my observation of leadership that I really find um, worthwhile. And and of course, then that starts to create um, an opinion and a bias. And um, then the work I've done has been through that lens, through the lens of how do we enable and empower people to be their very best? Franklin Covey's mission, this is part of what drew me to Franklin Covey halfway, two thirds of the way through my career is we have this desire to enable greatness in individuals and organizations. And for me, I have this aspiration to help an individual be that much better, to grow, to mature, to be to be ready for the next step, or to help a leader who might be a new leader or an experienced leader figure out how can I be better? And in this instance, you know, the work for the last 20 years has been on change, and it's trying to help those individuals and leaders um, find a, a little bit more success in a space that's inherently problematic. Change often is just so problematic for people and organizations. And so for me, it's it's probably a, a, a mixture of the two. Natural, my own personality, and then this real intentionality around saying, who do I want to be and what do I want to contribute back? Mm. It, it's, it's a great intention. You know, a lot of people will focus on themselves. How can I be better? What can I achieve? And you can feel that real sense of service in you that you're there to you know, understand what might be holding someone back and how can you help them um, in, you know, through supporting them through programs or coaching or um, a vision or something similar. Yeah. Working, you know, with some, you know, we talk about, I'll talk about Franklin Covey. Obviously there's uh, the, the book, um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is is world renowned in as a book, and you have some great program, like outstanding programs and um, your structure frameworks in a way. How much of the work that that the, that you do is bespoke versus you know here we've got this framework, got this program, and roll that out? Yeah. So from a Franklin Covey point of view. Our work is based around models and principles. And, and at that basic level, a model and a principle has a lot of flexibility in it. So some of our clients that work with us really just license the ability to use models, frameworks, principles, and they, they weave it in to the, the work that they're doing. But we, we also work with so many organizations that are smaller, have less resource, um, or are looking for us to be the experts. So we also have a fairly prescriptive way of encountering our work and using it to develop and build people. Now, the second one is probably the most common, but both scenarios exist. And, you know, Seven Habits does that. Our Speed of Trust content does that. Our Five Choices content that looks at productivity um, does that. Each one of them provides a model or a framework that's really clear and easy to understand. And from there, we build on it and provide a, an instructive, clear way to use it without taking away some flexibility that could exist for organizations where they have that capability. Mm. So we've just been through what we might regard as one of the biggest disruptions in the way we work, um, at least in our lifetime. In regards to those frameworks and, and when we think about leadership, what have we learned over the last three years that may be different to what you had already created previously? Like, like were there some things that you went, you know what, this has to change or we are missing this? Mm. Yeah, you know, this disruption you're talking about, the, the way we work, the places we work, the impact of being remote on relationships, right? The, the list goes on and on of the, the ripple effects that are coming out of that. What's interesting is I don't think the ripples in that pond are done yet. We're still trying to figure out what's yeah. the new way of work. I just read an article today that said all of these organizations that are forcing people back to the office are ending up with a much higher attrition rate and they're finding it difficult to replace. So I don't, I don't know where the new equilibrium will land. In terms of applying what we do, Here's what we found. We found that the principles of effectiveness, the principles and the frameworks of effectiveness and trust are still true mm. because they don't try and prescribe 
exactly what you do. They try and prescribe a mindset and a skill set and a tool set that you can use. What we're finding is, is we're having to revisit how we deliver to people. We might historically have pulled people into a classroom for two or three days. Now we find we're doing it in smaller chunks. We're spreading it out over time. We're doing some of it in person. We're doing some of it live online. So it, it's more about how we interact and talk about the ideas rather than the ideas having become out of date or not relevant. Mm. And what, what I really love is we're actually discovering that it's getting better impact because there's this smaller bite-sized space learning that gives people time to apply it, to practice it, to disagree with it, and then in the next discussion to revisit it. And so it's pretty exciting to me because it feels like we're actually creating more impact because of all the changes that have been forced into the world, including into our business. Yeah, I like that. It's, um, you know, obviously different modes. It's, it's how you deliver it and connect with the situation people face. The In regards to, we've seen a lot of people who have put out, here is my online training program, um, pay $99. And, and we even saw the universities, you know, pay $500, get our program and away you go self-learning. Um, my... I suppose observations of it is that it's not working that well and you can give away your best work in the world um, we can share yeah. the best work here on this podcast but unless people apply it and are getting feedback on it and maybe coach through it then it's unlikely to stick for very long is that what you're seeing as well yeah that's that's become a trend over the last 10 years and that's that's absolutely true now, I wouldn't want to diminish. There's a place for some self-directed learning, mm. some some watching a video. But usually what that does is it creates awareness. It doesn't create behavior change. Correct. And so awareness is a valuable thing. And there's nothing wrong with it. But most organizations, when they think about developing their people, aren't looking just to have somebody be more informed and then six months later have forgotten most of that. What they're looking for is to help people develop new skills, change their mindset, improve their behaviors so that those things drive better results in their organization. And, and when you are looking for that, then you've got to do something different than go watch a video. Hmm. And, you know, organizations that really study this will realize, you know, the, the percentage of people in an organization that go find self-directed learning and watch videos is really small. The yeah. uptake on that's not very large. We provide some of that, but it's it's all in support of an effort to create collective behavior change and to do that at scale. And that's where you have to get involved, just like you described, Craig, where, where you need to interact, you need to share ideas, you need to talk about how you apply it, you need to come back and coach to it. You need to do some sustainability work, which might be a video or a discussion or, or whatever it is so that you create this reinforcement over time that leads to actual behavior change. I was just thinking of something there that uh, might be interesting for companies to kind of consider as well, because quite often they'll, they'll, they might get a subscription to something, they have a smorgasbord of one million different programs and maybe not that many, but, and people just get overwhelmed, a lot, yeah. get overwhelmed, but maybe organizations can look at, let's select, you know, maybe five to eight programs. So it's not so overwhelming, keep them relatively short. Here's some self-based learning, uh, and then put it out to their team and go here. I want you to go off, have a look at these and then come back and let me know which one you find most interesting and want to learn most. And then it allows learning development to actually personalize a little bit more. So I think that's one aspect, but then you've also got to take into consideration what others are observing of those people. Cause they may just like what could happen is everyone just leans into what they already love and, and may be good at. Yeah. So I, I think that could be an interesting model for those that are doing a subscription based blended learning is to limit the number and then <clears throat> use it as a way to then personalize training for the future. Yeah, yeah the, I'm, I'm sure that 
that idea along with five other great ones, 20 other great ones will, will start to guide where we're going. But um, I think what you just described reinforces the idea that you still have to narrow the focus. Mm. You have to narrow the focus and then you have to lean in and create some sustainment and accountability to help people change their behavior. Okay, so we're seeing an interesting, I suppose, dilemma for for many companies in the world or or feel like or creating a dilemma around the fact that technology is making jobs redundant faster than potentially we have seen before um, and that there are new opportunities to upskill, reskill, etc. In regards to the way that people are that uh, that companies are now looking for training. Are you seeing people looking for more training around how people can upskill technology-wise? Or is it more still on the human side of things? Yeah, it, it depends on the organization. I don't know if there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. Um, you know, we're, we're in the human capability behavior change soft skills space. So <laughs> I'd love to say it's all about that. And there, there is a lot of that, right? We're, we've had, we've been as busy as we've ever been. Hmm. And so I do know there's an increased focus in our space about individual productivity, about people building and, and strengthening their relationships with a level of trust, about organizations dealing and working through change because there's so much being foisted upon them. So what I can comment on is we're seeing more interest in the space that we're in than probably at any point in the past. Yeah. And so I think organizations are realizing if we want to keep our people, we need to invest in them. If we want them to get better, we need to invest in them. And, you know, we, we talk to companies, clients where, they, of course, a safety training is an important part of what they do. Technology training is an important part of what they do but they're also investing in some of these leadership and effectiveness skills along the way. It was interesting talking to some speaker bureaus recently and we're asking, you know, what topics are people, and we do this every six months, you know, what what are companies asking for? What are conferences looking for in their speakers? And you think right now that economists and people that are like digital transformation, artificial intelligence would be the key ones. And they said, no, they're actually quite a way down the list. It is a lot around leadership, resilience, change. Um, so it's interesting to see that it's still sticking a lot in the human side of things. And even when we look at some of the big um, sort of workforce trends that some of the you know the consulting firms are putting out data around, most of the time, a majority of them are still human skills, which which I'm quite encouraged about because for me, I feel that human intelligence always needs to be a step ahead of artificial intelligence or technology intelligence. And the more we use technology, the more uh, the more important it will be for us to develop higher level human skills or, or soft skills as some people may call them. Yeah, I, I, I love that as well. Part, part of what inspires me about that you know, if that's what speaker bureaus are asking for, and I've seen that in some some other research where you see these leadership skills at the top of what's important or what are what are L and D departments focused on or executives worried about. What what I love is for me that says if we can make sure our people are capable and our leaders are capable, then we have a belief that the technology, the process, the workflow, what whatever else it is our people can handle that. Mm. They can figure that out or they can work through it as long as we develop our people and make them ready for that work. And so for me, that's great. That's inspiring to, around um, humankind and and where we're investing in people to get better. Because I think, I th- you know, when it comes to change, the topic that, that I've studied and worked on, one of my basic premises in the work that we've done is that organizations hire capable people. For me to come in and tell them how to do all their processes is really arrogant. I don't have any expertise in that. But the premise then is if I focus on helping these leaders understand patterns, skills, and tools that will make them more effective with change, all of their other capabilities will take care of the processes and the workflows in the hospital, 
mm. or in the military or at the NGO or at the school because they have the expertise in those areas. Let's add the change expertise that they need and that just amplifies all of their other skills. Okay, the, the fundamental principles of change, have have there been, you know, over the years you've been working this, have they changed at all or are they, they're always there? Well, from all the work that I've done with my, my colleagues on this, what I've seen over the last 20 years is that change follows a predictable pattern. Mm -hmm. Historically, we tried to lead change by, by process, by checklist, by workflow to march people and the organization through it. So I think what's changed um, from my perspective is um, if, if we can enable our people, they're going to have the ability to do all that checklist and that work. Not that that's unimportant work. That's mm -hmm. really important work. But we, we generally just hit the more button. We want more work. We want more effort. We want more time spent. We want and, and that more button fatigued people and led them to feel like every time a change came along, it was drudgery. Oh, no, here we go again. Rather than developing this capability, um, dare I say even a competency, to, to maximize the value that we're trying to get from the change so that we're not going through the change as a forced journey, but with the intent to create something better and to minimize the cost. So I think that's the that's the transition that we've seen and that we've tried to help amplify in the marketplace is to say, great, the pattern hasn't changed. Everybody goes through this very predictable pattern, organizations do. How can we help the people do better work and, and move through it better, more effectively? Because all the, the checklist approach, that'll come and go. That'll come and go and people will sort that part out. Yeah. When it comes to uh, what we've been through over the last couple of years in, in regards to COVID and the pandemic and other things that are happening around the world, do you think people's awareness of change has been amplified? And is there, are we seeing a shift in people's openness to change? Because change has always been there, um, but it seems to be amplified a little bit from my perspective. I'm, I'm curious to see what you're seeing and whether that's opening people's minds to be more comfortable with change? Well, you know, the more you, you experience something, I think you develop some resilience with it or some capability with it. One of the, one of the things that has been interesting, historically, when we talked about change, we would talk about, hey, we're implementing a new computer system, but we wouldn't necessarily talk about it as a change. Or we're sending everybody to work from home. And we, we wouldn't ever talk about that as a change. We would talk about it as an event. And, and I think we have started using the word change more commonly with these things. And I, I believe that's helpful because it lets everybody realize, oh, that was a change, this was a change, and this was a change. Whereas in the past, they might have felt quite disjointed or disconnected. And now we realize, oh, all of those are changes and then as you can learn, oh, there's a predictable pattern, it gives you the ability to apply a similar skill set, even though the type of change is quite drastically different. Mm. And so the language is starting to be used more. Okay, it's good. And obviously when we're, when we're conscious about something or we're exposed to something more, it's a bit easier to, to digest in a way. Mm -hmm. Now writing your book, and, and obviously you spend a lot of time working in the world of change, but writing the book, what did you learn in there that you hadn't realized or hadn't understood as being so important previously? Mm. Well, this is, this is, I'll give you two answers. The first one is I learned that writing a book is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you think after 15 years or 20 years of all these ideas and teaching them and coaching executives that you think, oh, it'll just come naturally. And, and what I've learned is that um, conveying the simplicity that's built into our framework, the minute you start writing about it, if you're not careful, you make it complex. Yep. And so it, it, it required a lot of effort and energy to write, to simplify, to make it easy to understand to put in place in the book 
tools or questions or discussion prompts that just allow a reader to get to the instant issue and instant value. One of my aspirations is always that somebody can draw on a whiteboard or a napkin the ideas that I've tried to come up with, that somebody can um, explain it to somebody else that easily, and that two or three discussion questions will create a lot of value and progress. So figuring out how to do that and, and keep the simplicity of it was one of the really big challenges that I felt for the for the couple of years that we were writing to really so we we actually rewrote the book three times in its entirety to simplify it, to thin it out, to make sure that the ideas came across in a very digestible way. So that for me was a big, big learning to the the just the idea of conveying the simplicity in writing. And it was unexpectedly difficult. <laughs> yeah, intelligent people admire simplicity and complexity is the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, mm-hmm. when, we, when we think about it, you know, talk about the napkin, uh, Simon Sinek, it starts with why. Why that was so powerful. You could write on a napkin. It was so easy to visualize. You only needed to see it once and you can pretty yep. much remember it for life. It, that's the power of simplifying something. And uh, you know, we see way too many people trying to make it sound more intelligent or try to try to overdo something. And really, it doesn't always need that much to to showcase what it is. So I find that that's a fascinating insight, which is really, really good. And obviously, when it comes to change, the, the simpler you can explain it or make it, the easier it is for people to comprehend, right? A lot of the times, mm-hmm. the challenges people find is one they they don't understand why we're changing two they don't have clarity on what the change is and three they can't visualize it and i think visualizing is is possibly the most important part you know we can we yeah. can we can amplify the problem as much as we like we can have clarity but unless i can actually see what that change is going to look like in my mind i'm probably not going to believe in it or adhere to it or follow it yep yep you know it's i love those th- three points you made we actually built a tool. It's a one pager and it asks three questions. It says, for a leader to say, what's the story? What's changing? Why is it changing? And what does it mean for you and your people? What are you wanting them to move from? Yeah. And what do you want them to move to? And, and help paint a picture. Because if you can create that vision for people, it makes engaging with it so much easier. It makes it personal. And mm-hmm. I can connect with it and become part of the solution rather than you having to push me along the journey. And yeah. so, yeah, I love, I love that insight that you have and it's built right into what we do. And we happen to label that a case for change. Why, what, what, why, and what does it look like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Very, very good. Now you've got quite a few different sections inside the book. Um, you know, from looking at how you start with change, experiencing the mindset, etc. What What do you think, is probably the most important component of change that tends to be lacking uh, in in your observations of many companies around the world. Yeah. Um, in, in an organizational context, people often feel like the change is being done to them. Mm. And the minute you feel like something's being done to you, which... Which in, in some sense it is, right? You're not you're not making the decision for it to happen. Some leader somewhere has made that change. Hopefully it's a really smart idea. In our own personal life, um, that's less of the case, right? If I choose to go to school, if I choose to buy a new house, if I choose to get married or what, those are all changes that I'm initiating, but I've chosen them. And so I, even though I might be a little nervous, I feel like I have some control over it. In an organizational context, um, I feel like that's happening to me. And so one of the one of the big stumbling blocks is because I feel like it's happening to me, human reaction says, if you're imposing something on me, I'm going to oppose it. I'm going to push back. Yeah. And that's a very natural reaction. It's it's a self-defense mechanism that's wired into our DNA. But it gets in the way because it causes us to to move towards a fight or flight to a protect myself mentality rather than to an explore the possibilities 
and where could there be value? And if there is, how do I engage and create that value? And if there isn't, then how do I make a choice about that? And so I, th I think this is, that's one of the big stumbling blocks is that change imposed is opposed. And it, if we can if we can recognize that and step back and start to make choices about it, our engagement goes up, our energy goes up, our creativity goes up, and the success of the outcomes improve. Brilliant. So say, say we've implemented a new change initiative, we get into it and we realize, you know what, we're going down the wrong path here. Um, how do we backtrack or mm -hmm. find a new path? Like, Because it's not always a good idea to backtrack and try and go back to what you used yep. to be. Um, like, I think that's the wrong, potentially I feel that's the wrong move, but I'm, you know, how do we get ourselves out of a situation that's, that's heading down a wrong path? Brilliant question. You know, 70% of change initiatives, organizational change initiatives, fail to reach their intended outcome. Mm. So, so they're doing what you're describing, right? That's HBR data, that's IBM data, that's pretty prevalent data, 70, 75%. And so for me, there's, there's, a, there's a decision to be made there. Did we define the what's changing and why based on a we have to do exactly this or we or we just said we need to change and and we need to be in this space you know whatever that is if we've been really prescriptive and said we will do exactly this um then we can find ourselves stuck because oh well that didn't work now what do we do but if we if we've described a future state that that has room for us to innovate along the way then i think what happens is as we work and we say oh that didn't work we just step back, we look at our vision and say, based on what we've learned didn't work, what could we try next? Mm. And, and so part of it is in the problem definition. And if we're not careful, the problem definition can be so myopic that we, that we feel like we've hit the end of the road. Whereas if we, can, if we can define the problem in a way that gives us free space to explore and discover, then, then finding, oh, that's not the right path, is only a learning that lets us course correct rather than a dead end that leaves us stuck. Yeah, yeah, I like that. The, the ability to course correct. Um, it's not as though you're in a, a tight bubble. <laughs> That's right. And the only way to get out is to burst it. Um, you know, because so, some, you know, here we, we've talked about a problem, right? So change because of a problem, but sometimes there's not always a problem. They're just, there might be a new opportunity. When we approach change, from we have a problem to solve versus here is an opportunity we can explore or here's a potential opportunity. Is there a difference in the way we approach change? Well, there, there's often, and, and by the way, there are other entry points into that too. Maybe there's new regulation that's just mandated change, right? There, there's all sorts, or maybe it's a collective bargaining agreement that suddenly changes the way we interact with our work, our labor right. force. So every one of those will go through the same change pattern. That part's consistent. Um, what will be different is the level of energy and enthusiasm at the starting point. And um, in every one of those instances, it's still really important for a leader to paint a picture of why are we changing and what do we think this could lead to? Um, Generally, you'll find that if it feels um, exciting, it's a group that loves to explore new things, you, you'll probably move through the process at quicker pace, but but maybe not because implementing it, you might find lots of obstacles that you didn't expect. Yeah. So, so my answer would be same pattern will exist and really important for leaders to still create a vision of why we're changing, even if it feels like, oh, this is a no-brainer. It's still important to have that. So if you hit a stumbling block, you know, a sand pit, if you hit some, a brick wall, what, whatever it is, you still have that to fall back on because the very most exciting change can hit obstacles. And if we don't have a vision, then it still hasn't been exciting. It's just stuck. So when it comes to change, uh, is there kind of a clear cut when we're looking at change, whether the leader makes a decision on we're making a change or whether they allow the collective group to decide on whether we change? Or is it just based on instinct? 
Well, we need leadership, right? If, if we tried to run every organization by common consent, we'd really struggle. We'd really struggle. So we need leadership and we expect leaders to have access to information we may not have, to have clarity of purpose and vision and mission. So I, I think there will always be in, in an organizational context, a need for leaders to put forward um, organizational changes. And then, then there's two places where people should really be engaged. And this is important. Um, even if a leader has to put forward a change that needs to happen, once you've painted the picture and you've created the why and, and the start of the what, that's where you have the ability for each level of leadership to engage their people and say, and what does that mean to us? And what can we do about it? So you're pulling your people into the change by fostering a dialogue around the case for change or the vision. Um, now, that does not rule out that in some instances, you might have somebody on a factory floor that says, you know what, if we did this differently, it could lead to. Mm-hmm. And organizations need to foster an openness for that to come back in the form of input as well. So so both can happen, but so much of the change we experience is organizational, strategic, leader-led change. And we have to we have to be able to engage in that and then involve our people in it so they're engaged in it. Is there any change initiative that you have implemented and for you, you you're part of that 70% of change initiatives that failed uh, that you could share and what the lessons you learned from it were? <laughs> Probably a list longer than I'd want to share. As you started your question, I was thinking about an example of one that worked, of course. <laughs> so, um, I, I led one change and we were about a year into it and somebody looked at me and said, you're using your change content on us. And I said, well, of course I am. Why wouldn't I be? Um, yeah, so I, I worked with a team um, in India, a call center, and and the change was largely successful, but I would say it was 70% successful. Um, and and it was really interesting because it, it was a group of 5,000 people in this you know, the organization, a couple different call centers there. And um, all the principles we were teaching were true. All of the tools we were using were true. But um, the reason I would say we got to 70% was um, I was less experienced with the culture part of change, Mm -hmm. organizational change at that point in my career. Um, This was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I think if I had been a little more um, capable feeding the, the, not the organizational culture, but the, the Indian work culture into the tools we were using, I would have done a better job as a consultant. I would have done a better job helping them not overlook that because that's one of the ingredients that goes into the equation. So I, I don't think it actually... Um, highlighted anything wrong with the methodology or the tools. It highlighted the the, um, the lack of experience of the consultant, which in that moment was me, and, and and not drawing that into the equation as adequately as I should have. It's a really important point. You know, as many companies become more global, um, and even even when you look at uh, in your own, you know, if you're just in one country, the globalization and the the diversification of people that are living in those places, the awareness of what are some of those cultural human behaviors in a way when it comes to work or comes to change are so critically important. Uh, for, for you, uh, when you look at change, is there something that you find is is kind of one of those silent ingredients that, that helps successful change that not many people talk about, but you think is quite critical to allowing successful change to occur? Yeah, it's a leadership skill. Um, I find that a lot of leaders do not like to engage with their people in a discussion about the change because they feel like their lack of answers will leave them exposed as not capable. And and it's such a flawed paradigm because 
it's it's really naive to think that any leader would have all the answers. And yet when we when they when I see leaders, especially newer leaders wanting to lead change, they think, well, I don't have the answers. We can't talk about that. And so one of the things I do is I say to them, let's write down a list of every question you think you're going to be asked that you don't have the answer for. Mm. The list of questions that I can't answer. And in the meeting, why don't we just start with, hey, here's the change. Here's what's going on. And here's my list of questions that I don't have answers to, to, to actually confront that reality rather than hide from it and not engage in the dialogue. And, and I found that if leaders can do that, it actually creates a higher level of engagement from their people. They want to help their leader solve the problems. I like that. I like that. Very, very good. It is opening up uh, some vulnerability, which is super important as a leader. Now, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Last time I did something for the first time. Um, last Thursday... This is this great question. Uh, last Thursday, I, um, I I go I go um, in the mountains a lot. I live in the mountains in Utah. So, um, but we we went on an excursion up into the mountains to ten thousand feet of elevation in the snow, um, using some new equipment I had never used, and um, we had some moments that didn't quite work right. <laughs> And um, had to do a lot of problem solving because we got up into um, some snow, even in June, this time of year in, in Utah, you shouldn't have a lot of snow, but we got up into six, eight feet of snow in some places and had some challenges. So um, that was a whole new experience for me because I was on some equipment I hadn't been familiar with. And, um, but it was a great adventure. It was with four other people. We solved the problems together. We worked together. Um, and had a, a great experience. So that was one. Um, another thing that I did recently that I haven't done is um, I traveled to Beijing, China, right after the pandemic. I mean, just after they opened it up, so about three months ago. Um, and that was something I hadn't done before. The only place I'd been was to Hong Kong, but now I've been in several places. So I, I, I traveled to a new country culture uh, work environment and got to spend a marvelous eight days there working with some people. So Brilliant. those are two things recent. Love it. Love it. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Mm. Um, you know, I, th there's two but I'll, t I'll tell you the one that, that's been plaguing me for um, probably six years. And that is how to help people develop more curiosity. I've yet to see a training program or um, an, an approach that helps people develop genuine, authentic curiosity. I feel like it's a missing skill in a lot of people. And um, I would love, love, love to crack the code on how to help people become more authentically curious. I think it would cause better listening and better problem solving. And right now, those are two things that are missing in society. For you, what is an inspiring great leader? And who is a great example of this for you? Hmm. Um, do you want a current one or historical? Up to you. Your choice. Okay. Um, I am going to, I, there's a lot, right? I Because I work in the leadership space and I work with people who think about this a lot, I feel really fortunate to be exposed to that. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an easy way out, but it's, it's not meant to be easy. Um, I work for... Um, uh, the 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 division president at Franklin Covey, and um, her name's Jen, and she has been a remarkable leader. I've only worked for her for two years, two years, two years, 
Um, I've known her for about seven or eight years, but I've only worked for her for two years. And, um, you know, every leader has strengths that they they uh, bring. And so I don't know that I would say I, I know the complete leader, but the things I love about Jen are that um, she's learned what my strengths are and she's been able to just trust me to do what I do really well. Um, and the other thing that I really, really admire is that when there are complex problems that I need to hand to her, she never loses track of them. It might take her a long time to solve it. There's been one problem that she worked on for over a year, but I, I have complete confidence that when I hand something like that to her, it will come back with an answer as long as I'm patient. And mm -hmm. so those are two things I really admire about her leadership um, is recognizing my strengths and allowing me to be my best in those areas. And when she does help that she, um, she, she always takes it, even if it takes a long time to come back, it doesn't just drift into the background or get forgotten by her. Okay. And I'm going to put a bonus question in here because you're doing so well <laughs> today. Uh, if I was to speak with Jen and I asked yeah. her, how would she describe your leadership characteristics? What would she say? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, I think one of the things I, I, I hope most of the leaders at Franklin Covey would say this. Um, I think they would say that I have a fairly good blend of strategic and operational tactical that, that I have the ability to, to balance those. Um, they would say that I have a very good handle on my area of responsibility, but here's the one that probably matters to me the most. I think they would say that there's an, an integrity um, in how I show up at work that matches how I show up in every other facet of my life. That I'm I'm wildly consistent. I don't I don't show up in different roles in different ways. For me, that matters tremendously. I try and try and bring the same level of um, I call it brand Bateman. It's in my mission statement, but I call it brand Bateman. That where, wherever I apply myself, that I that I that I bring the same values, the same skills, the same intentionality to what I do, and that um, in good moments, bad moments, tough moments, frustrating moments, disappointing moments, personal moments, that there is this this authentic consistency for me that represents my best self. So I don't know. You should call her sometime and ask her. It'd be a great question to ask. <laughs> I look forward to that conversation. Uh, thank you. So it's, it's, look, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I could we could talk for hours. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do, and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, thank you for that. So of course we've talked about Franklin Covey. If you go to franklincovey.com, um, you can find. Um, for those that are, might be seen, you can find the book um, and you can find information about it. You can find information about me as a speaker and my co-authors, um, three other amazing co-authors, uh, Marche Plachette, Andy Sindrich, and Christy Phillips. Uh, you can find out about all four of us. And you can also, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I, I post um, new articles as I interact with clients. I get great questions. So I'll write a a blog or an article there's there's this pretty constant stream of additional thoughts around the topic there so i'm um, just curtis bateman on linkedin and um at franklin covey and you'll find me so those are the two best places franklincovey.com and my linkedin beautiful so we'll pop those links in the show notes curtis it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today uh, i love learning about uh, your approach from when you were a child through to how you navigated change around the world um, and being able to not only be in a great company or be in great companies that are delivering amazing content and working with great leaders. What I've really noticed is that you, yes, you can apply principles and things that you really believe in, but you are, you can tell that you're bringing yourself 100% authentically and genuine so there's a great, and as you talk about your, uh, your alignment there from when you're in work to when you're home. And I can feel that in the way that you're able to express yourself in our conversation today. Um, I encourage everyone to grab a, grab a copy of the book Change. Uh, you know, I've had a, a good uh, sort of 
look through parts of it at the moment. I'm looking forward to finishing the book, uh, maybe while I'm away in Queenstown. Oh, yeah, there you go. And um, so, yeah, check that out. I, I think it's fascinating. And so thank you very much for your insights today. It was great to have a conversation around the important topic of change and how leaders and both employees can do this more effectively in this world so we can change that 70% statistic to maybe the other way. So That's thank right. you. That's right. Great, Craig. Thanks to be with you today. Appreciate it. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.